Amen. Luke chapter 22. If you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 22. A couple of weeks ago, we began a new series. It is our Easter sermon series entitled, as you can see on the screen, King Jesus. And we are looking at key events within the last few hours of Jesus' life. Before we look closer at his crucifixion in just a couple of weeks, and his resurrection in just a few weeks. And what I want you to see in all of this is the kingship of Jesus. I want you to see his dominion. That word means the power to rule, to control. I want you to see the control and the power that Jesus has throughout these events, before, during, and after. In other words, Jesus knew exactly what was to happen to him. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was in complete control, despite that most people might look at the situation and say it's out of control. In the same way that we may look at our culture or our world and say things are out of control. Jesus is still in control. And it was clear even in these events, Jesus was in complete control. He was leading all things and all people to this moment in history. Even as Jesus said in John 10, he said, No one takes my life from me. No Roman, no religious leader, no culture, no person. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, voluntarily, freely. I lay it down. And then he said, I have authority to lay it down. There's this dominion, this power, this control. I have authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. And he says that in John 10, verse 18. Jesus knew what he was doing. He was persistent. He was purposeful. He was precise in everything. He was driving the entire narrative. Thus, while it appears that everything is out of control, while it appears to be the most weakest moments of Jesus' life, it's actually his power, his authority, his supremacy, his kingship, his dominion that is on display before, during, and after all of it. And so the first week, a couple weeks ago, we looked at John 18, and we looked at the arrest. Jesus, remember, was in the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, right outside Jerusalem. And then Judas shows up with the the mob, basically, and he is arrested. Today, we're going to look at the denial. Next week, we're going to look at the trial of Jesus that simultaneously is unfolding right at the time of Peter's denial, as we'll see today. And then here in a couple weeks, we'll look at the crucifixion. And then finally, on Easter Sunday, we'll obviously look at the resurrection. But today, I want to focus on the denial, specifically Peter's denial of Jesus in Luke chapter 22. And I want to set this scene up by first talking about something almost completely off subject, so it seems. I want to talk about the Titanic. Y'all recognize this ship, the the Titanic, the ship of dreams, launched in 1912, over 100 years ago. And in 1912, at that time, there was no ship like it. In size, in power, 
Hence the name Titanic, which is a word that has its roots in Greek mythology. It refers to the Titans who were known to possess godlike power and strength and might. This ship that you're looking at on the screen was of great power. Thus, the Titanic was called the unsinkable ship. It was big, it was brilliant, it was beautiful, it was powerful. The Titanic was something the seas had never seen before, at least outside of perhaps military ships. So in April of 1912, in April of 1912, 100,000 people gathered in Southampton, England, to see and to watch its first official voyage off to sea as the Titanic would set sail for New York City. 2,200 people were on board. And among the 2,200, there were many crew members. And among those crew members, there was a group who was given the orders to watch, to be on guard, to look out for things like icebergs. That was their job. Well, the crew members of Titanic, on April 14th, 1912, the day of the disaster, they received seven iceberg warnings. Not the hour leading up to them hitting an iceberg. All day, they received seven different iceberg warnings. Fields of ice are before you. Icebergs are ahead. Danger, warning, warning, warning. If you don't stop, if you don't change course, if you don't turn around, it could and perhaps will prove tragic. Of course, we know the story. We know the history. They kept going. Full steam, full throttle ahead. They hit an iceberg, and they were not prepared for the unsinkable ship to sink. But that's exactly what would happen, and something like 1,500 people died. And now, over 100 years later, we know the Titanic, that mighty, powerful ship, not as this, but more like this. Dead and adrift at the bottom of the sea. A great, sad tragedy. Well, at one point in Jesus' ministry, he had many followers. And according to Luke's accounts, there was one night in which Jesus spent all night in prayer. All night in prayer, and the next day he gathered up all his many followers, at least in that area, and from those many followers he chose 12 of them. They would become known as the 12 disciples, these 12 followers, the 12 apostles. And of those 12, at least as we read throughout the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we, we gather that three of them were really, really close to Jesus, or at least they were invited into a more kind of intimate relationship with Jesus. Those three were James and John, two brothers, sons of Zebedee, and Peter. Now, Peter is one of the most famous, if not the most famous, disciple of Jesus. 
He's the one who walked on water. Peter was there at the transfiguration of Jesus on that mountain with only James and John. Peter got to watch his mother-in-law healed. Peter saw all the miracles. He himself was part of those sent out to heal, to cast out demons, to proclaim that the kingdom of God was near. Peter was the one who confessed Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, that great revelation and declaration that there was no other person that Peter could or should or wanted to go to. For Peter, Jesus was the one. And Peter was like a rock, a warrior, a defender. The one who even, as we saw a couple weeks ago in the garden, who would even try to defend Jesus at his arrest. And out of all those that you might consider among the 12, among all of Jesus' followers, Peter was the model for strength, for loyalty, the model of power. Out of Jesus' followers, Peter was the Titanic, so to speak, the unsinkable one. If anybody was to sink, it wouldn't be Peter. Yet Jesus warned him over and over again. Field of ice is before you, Peter. Icebergs are ahead. Danger. Satan himself has requested you to sift you like wheat. The flesh is weak, Peter. This is what's going to happen, Peter. Warning, warning, warning. Peter, if you don't stop, if you don't change course, if you don't turn around, it may just very well prove tragic. Of course, we know the story. We know the history. Peter continued on full throttle, full steam ahead. After all, he was mighty Peter, powerful Peter, the unsinkable Peter, and this prideful power of Peter's was on full display in places like Matthew 26. In Matthew 26, Jesus told them, listen, talking to the 12, this very night, all of you will fall away on account of me. He says, because it's written in the scriptures, and this comes from Zechariah, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Peter hears this, and this is his response. Even if all of them fall away on account of you, I never will. Never say never, right? I never will will. No, not me. I'm Peter. Prideful, powerful Peter. I'm unsinkable. I would never do that, even if the rest of the culture did that. I would never do what my neighbors do. I would never do what they do. So Jesus answers this and says, listen, Peter, truly I'm telling you this. On this very night, before the rooster crows, and we'll look at this in a, just a moment, but in essence what Jesus is saying is within hours of right now, of you declaring that you would never fall away from me, you are going to disown me, you're going to deny me three 
times. Within hours, Peter, you're going to fall. You're going to disown. You're going to deny me. But Peter was persistent. And he declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. He declared this. His emotions were rising up into his words. I will never disown you. And oh, by the way, all the other disciples said the same. Because Peter was the leader. Yeah, 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 what Peter said. Yeah, yeah, we're with Peter on this. Prideful, powerful Peter. And then this happened, Luke 22, verse 54. They're in the garden and they seize Jesus. And they led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house or his palace. And Peter was following at a distance. Verse 55, Luke 22. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and they sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light, looking closely at him, she said, hey, this man also was with him. But Peter denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw Peter, and they said, hey, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, listen, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another person insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered at that moment, it flashed through his mind, according to another gospel account, saying to the Lord how he had said to him just hours before, remember, before the rooster crows tonight, today, you will deny me three times. And so Peter went out, and he wept bitterly. The denial is an event recorded in all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four of them record it. And after taking all the accounts into consideration, we get a pretty clear picture of the denial. They all include a little bit of details that the others just don't include. So here they are, even as Luke sets up the scene here, they're in the garden and Jesus is arrested. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. They seized him, they bound him, and they led him to the house of Caiaphas, who was the high priest at the time. But we also see him before Annas, and we'll look at this next week during the trial. And many people believe that Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, was kind of informally still acting as high priest, because he was the high priest before Caiaphas. And there's a whole legal thing there, but we'll just suffice it to say that many people believe that Annas and Caiaphas lived at the same palace, the same house. And the house was kind of like a square, rectangular compound. Here is just a small potential replica of the house of Caiaphas. 
And this palace, this house was built, this compound was built to face inward. So the house would surround, as you can see there in the picture, kind of a courtyard or a couple of courtyards. Now our houses are built to face outward. Our yards are on the outside, our backyard, our front yard. Well, this house was built inwardly. So it's almost like a wall surrounding it, and then the yard would be on the inside. And so many people believe that Jesus was at this house for many hours before Annas, before Caiaphas. Again, we'll look at that next week. But in John's gospel, we see that John, you can see this in John 18, John gets into Caiaphas's house inside the compound because he has a connection to the high priest. Peter does not have that connection. Peter is not on the list of names accepted into the compound. Peter was not invited. So in John's gospel, we read that John has to go to the servant girl who's in essence guarding the gate, the door to get into the house. And John has to go up to her and say, listen, listen, I'm with the high priest. Peter's okay. He's with me. You can let him in. And this is how Peter gets let into the house. Think of it like you wanting to go to a party at the governor's house, and you have no connection to the governor, you weren't invited, and so you show up at the house, and you're there at the gate, and the security guard is looking at the list of names to allow in, and he's like, hey, listen, you're not on the list. You can't get in. But then you have a friend on the inside who's connected to the governor who then comes down and says, no, 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 you can trust this Jonathan fellow. He's with me. You can let him into the house. That's in essence what happens here with Peter. So Peter gets in, and it's nighttime, and the crowd of servants and some guards and whoever else was there are all in this courtyard in this kind of palace compound, and they're waiting by the fire. Most likely an earshot of what's happening around them. Jesus before Annas, perhaps on one wing. Jesus before Caiaphas, perhaps on another wing. But as they're waiting, there's suspicion growing about this Peter fellow. People directly confronting him, but also people definitely whispering about him. Perhaps that servant girl that John talked to at the gate. Perhaps she's the first one to come to Peter. To see his face now in the fire, not in the shadows of the dark. People now hearing his accent as a Galilean and knowing that Jesus spent much of his time in Galilee, had many Galilean followers. And so they begin to confront this Peter fellow. Hey, you're one of his followers. You're one of the the close ones. You're the one that was professing him as the Christ. And Peter is adamant. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. And according to other accounts, and you can almost see it in this account, as time is progressing, Peter even starts calling down curses. His emotions are building up in him. Let me be cursed if what I'm saying is not true. I don't know this Jesus, and I have nothing to do with him. Peter turned from Jesus, abandoned Jesus, denied Jesus three times. And after the third denial, the rooster crows. Now in Mark's gospel, it's the second time 
the rooster crows. You can read that in Mark 14. You say, well, how in the world is that? Why would Mark say the rooster would crow twice or Jesus would talk about that? Well, in Palestine, it was common for roosters to crow at 12.30, 1.30, and 2.30 in the morning. As a matter of fact, because of this, Romans had a special term in reference to the rooster crowing, a term that would refer to the middle of the night watch was was from 12 to 3 a.m. Meaning, what we know is that it's dark outside, it's a little bit chilly, it's the middle of the night. And either way, the rooster crows after the third time, Peter denies Jesus, and then Peter remembers what Jesus had said just hours earlier. That within a few hours, Peter, on this very night, you will deny me. And no doubt, Peter also remembered that only hours before, he had said, I will never disown you. I will never deny you, even if I have to die for you. Peter was full of prideful power, the unsinkable of titanic proportions. But Peter goes from prideful power to this vulnerable, humiliating moment. With Jesus looking right at him. Which means also Peter had to be looking at him. It's like a parent catching you in the act of doing wrong. It's a humiliating moment, a shameful moment. I mean, just think of the emotions, the gut-wrenching feelings, the thoughts. Thus, Peter gets out of there, he runs away, and he weeps and weeps bitterly. As Paul might say, he who thought he could stand has fallen terribly. Or as the scripture says, pride goes before the fall. Prideful, powerful Peter of titanic size, the unsinkable, has sunk. What a great, sad tragedy. The question is, is what do we learn from this passage, from this event, from this scene? You and I must see ourselves in Peter on that night. You had better see yourself in him. Because all of us, in a way, are like Peter. All of us are like sheep who've gone astray. All of us have denied him. All of us have sinned. All of us have failed. All of us have rebelled. All of us, going all the way back to the garden, the beginning of it all, all of us, a sad, tragic story. Just like Peter. All of us dead in our sins, adrift at the bottom of the sea. This is Peter in this moment. This is us. And we might say, well, then what's the point? In such darkness and despair, within this denial, where's the hope? Where's the hope for Peter? Where's the hope for us? Where's the hope for the world? The point is, the hope is wrapped up in Jesus. Don't miss this because it's the message I want you to see in this series. Jesus knew Peter would run away. 
Jesus knew that Peter would disown him. Jesus knew that Peter would deny him. Jesus knew that Peter would sink and tragedy would strike in just the same way that Jesus knew you would run away. He knew that you would disown and deny him. He he knew that you would sink and tragedy would strike. He knew that the fruit would be taken and death and sin would come. And yet knowing that, knowing all that we would do, knowing all that Peter would do, he still voluntarily came after us. What happened between Jesus and Peter and Jesus' response to Peter before, during, and after is what has happened between God and humanity on a cosmic level. God knew what would happen, and yet he still voluntarily pursued us. He still voluntarily laid down his life for you and for me, for Peter and for the world. Listen, even as Jesus looks at Peter, he's in custody for our sin. Hours removed from being crucified for our sin. And it was his choosing. He knew it all. He was in control of all of it, leading all things to this moment in history. As Jesus said well before these events, no one will take my life from me. I will lay it down of my own accord. Even in Peter's denial, even in our denial, he displayed his dominion, his lordship, his kingship, and ultimately his love for us. So that our story, if we would just love him, repent and believe in him, that our story would not end in darkness and denial and death, but that it would end in light, in relationship with him, and in life in him. You say, well, how do I know that? So sometime later, after Jesus' death, after Jesus' resurrection, Peter found himself on a distant shore. Just had a morning breakfast. The morning sun is on his face. There's light all around. And God himself in human form, resurrected, raised imperishable with immortality, raised in honor and glory, is standing there before him. In many ways, the opposite kind of context than the hours that night at the palace of Caiaphas. And here, Peter is not the picture of prideful power on this shore, but he is the picture of humility and really repentance. And Jesus asked him on that shore three times, clearly in connection to the three denials, do you love me? what I want to know, Peter. Do you love me? Do you love me? And unlike his denials, Peter starts off very confidently and actually goes downwards. And finally he says, almost to the point of crying, of course I do. And listen to this, on that shore, in that light, because of his humility, because of his love for Jesus, Jesus himself 
restored Peter, confirmed Peter, strengthened Peter, and established Peter. And here's my point. I'm convinced that it was this experience, Peter's story before, during, and after his denial, his tragic fall from prideful power to tragedy to humble embrace by Jesus, that I'm convinced compelled Peter to write these words. Listen to what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5. He said, humble yourselves. Earlier said, quoting scripture, God opposes the proud. That prideful power, God opposes it. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. There's a field of ice before you. There's icebergs ahead. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, has requested you to sift you like wheat. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You've got to resist him. You've got to stand firm in your faith. You've got to know that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood and sisterhood throughout the world. And then he says this. And after you have suffered a little while, after you experience this, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, God will himself restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. You say, well, how do you know that, Peter? Because he did so with me, Peter might respond. He's writing from experience. You say, well, yeah, but how do you know, Peter, that he can and that he will restore and confirm and strengthen and establish me? Don't you recognize what I have done? Perhaps Peter's response to that is also by experience. As he just might say, well, don't you know that to him belongs the dominion forever and ever? See his kingship. See his lordship. See his dominion. Peter knew this by experience. The story of the denial is, in essence, a warning message for us, a wake-up call. You and I are not unsinkable. As a matter of fact, according to the Scriptures, you and I are already sunk. You and me, like Peter, all of us have gone astray. We're dead in our sin. We're adrift at the bottom of the sea by our own prideful doing. But this is the gospel, the good news. Jesus knew that, and he still came to lay down his life for you and for me, to open his arms to us, but we must heed the warning. 
We must humble ourselves under his lordship and kingship and dominion. We must repent and believe. We must love him. We must surrender to him. And if we do, then he will, on a distant shore, perhaps some point in the future, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. But if we don't, then we'll be just like the Titanic. We'll be just like Judas. Forever lost is a great, sad tragedy. The question then remains, do you love him? Do you love him? Do you love him? Heads bowed, eyes closed. I'm going to invite the team forward. We'll have a time of response. For some of us, this is the time of just confession and repentance. We specifically denied Jesus in certain ways this past week by our actions, by our words, by our lack of actions, by our lack of words. For some of us, we are outside of Christ and we need salvation. And He's calling us today to follow Jesus and for today be the day of our salvation. Perhaps that's you. For others of us, he's just calling us to sit at his feet, to sit in his presence, and just reflect on his life given for us and to be thankful that even though he knew all that we would do, say, or think, not do, say, or think, be thankful that he still freely and willingly gave up his life for us. That's how we know what love is. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how we know what love is. That while Jesus is in custody, one of his very, very closest is denying him. Yet he knew it was going to happen. And he still chose to lay down his life for us. So for some of us, he's just calling us to sit in his presence and just to be thankful. For his grace, for his mercy, for his love. For the cleansing and the washing and the forgiveness of sins. But as I pray, if you have a decision to make, maybe it's of repentance or salvation or renewal, or baptism, or joining the church, even as I pray, you can come. If you need to talk to me, I'll be down here in the front. If you just want to come and pray these steps, they will be open. But even as I pray, you come. Father, bring conviction, repentance, Lord, bring a spirit of just thanksgiving. Though we, all of us like sheep, have gone astray, you, the great shepherd, lay down your life for the sheep. That we might have life in you, a relationship with you. That we might be forgiven. 
Lord, I thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. We thank you for your plan of salvation and redemption and restoration, what we have to look forward to. But Lord, I pray that you bring conviction upon our hearts and minds if we have denied you in any way this week, this month, this year. We turn from it. Bring us to a moment just before you. Just to say we love you. We thank you. Stir our hearts and minds, Lord, whatever it is you're calling us to do. Help us to be doers of your word and not hearers only. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You stand with us as we sing. You come if you have a decision to make.